We must speak the truth about terrorists. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Wham! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No delusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Rothkuschel. So um, we did, uh, we recorded and posted um, a 20-year retrospective of September 11th and uh, talked a lot about the, um, where we see things as far as um, the particularly dealing into the, the, uh, the who and the, uh, the who and the how, the who and the why of September 11th as it relates to that aspect of it. In particular, and uh, people can go and listen to uh, our part one, uh, our friend, uh, in addition to where we have it posted on our uh, via anchor to the major podcast distributors. Our friend uh, John Swin posted uh, posted part one on his on his channel, so you can so you can check that out. Um, so that's that's up for people to to check out. Now with this recording, I guess we'll call this part two. I guess Jeremy, but we all we want to take a look at a few stories that uh, we had our eye on over the uh, over the course of the. September 11th, uh, 20 year anniversary. And so we're going to get into a few stories that we've had our eye on. We're going to start with this. Um, we're going to start with the, uh, con- the controversy surrounding the uh, Spike Lee uh, HBO miniseries, Epicenters, New York City. So um, Jeremy, do you have anything you want to say before we get into that? Or would you like to just get to the uh, articles? Let's just uh, get into it. I mean, I guess one thing I would just say is that the the uh, conceptual structure that we've approached both 9-11 and the 11-9 operation and the continuity there is the combination of the intelligence operation, which is the, the legend side of it, the, the false flag part of it, really. You know, the, in order to, you have to have a patsy or you have to have a backstory at the very least. And that is the intelligence operation. And that is a, a very legitimate area of focus in both of these places, 9-11 and 11-9. But it's not, I don't believe it's intellectually legitimate to stop there. And I think it's helpful to introduce this idea of a holistic conceptual framework so that it can be recognized when we fall into getting stuck in any of these uh, areas. Um, So that would uh, include then the military operation. The military operation is the part of the actual physical phenomenon, the actual attack itself, the, the, the things that could be then defined by ballistics or physical forensics that point in, in specific ways. And this is usually the definition of a false flag operation is that the, the forensics do not line up with the, uh, the Patsy, the, the, that who, the, the finger pointing, basically. And so those two things are important to distinguish and to separate out. And then finally, and in a certain way, this category is really more and more crucial, is the 
what what we ca- what we titled the counterintelligence part of the operation, which is the the cover up part of the operation, and that includes so many different layers and even uh, approaches to cover up. And so, in that realm, uh, doing some background historical research into the ways that previous deep events state crimes against democracy, false flags, have been apparently covered up. And some of that is not really well parsed out, but we, from just the basics of things like uh, intelligence agencies and propaganda operations over history, uh, their information operations, there's there's bits that we know in terms of the way that one might cover up a massive operation such as September 11th uh, after the fact. And crucial to that would be things such as what might be called limited hangouts, where the perpetrators get ahead of the investigation, the public investigation, by releasing certain strains of evidence or focusing on certain strains of evidence uh, and and creating certain lines, maybe invisible lines, that are the limits to both understanding and public speech. So, for example, a good example of this would be we were lied to about 9-11. It's true. It's true as far as it goes. But it's an obvious limited hangout, especially 20 years after the fact. In 2001, like I said before, and that wouldn't have been a quote-unquote limited hangout in terms of the level of the public investigation into September 11th. That would be, there'd be enough there to say, to assert that, and it wouldn't be a total limited hangout. In 2021, we were lied to about, about 9-11 is a limited hangout. And it doesn't mean that it's not true, but it's obviously limited. Okay, that's one thing. Then you can imagine things like red herrings where there are wild goose chases either that end up in a place that is a limited hangout or something like a uh, disinformation where you get uh, stuck holding a a rotten bag of some sort. Yeah. And so that's, and, the, and think about the, the, where that goes back, a, a red herring. I think that goes back to like hunting days where the, uh, the a stinky fish is used to throw uh, a dog off the trail, I believe. Um, and so, so there, that can be a, a other things that have popped in. So I would, for example, I would say something about building seven is a bit of a red herring. It doesn't mean that it's not true, that it was obviously key to understanding, but it's a red herring away from the World Trade Center towers themselves, which is where the very, very public and the uh, demolitions happened, tons and tons of videos from all around, uh, and then the, also the, the place of the majority of the murders on September 11th. 
So a focus, a move to focus on building seven away from the trade towers, I would say is something like a combination of a red herring towards a limited uh, hangout, for example. Or as I mentioned before, the question of jet fuel doesn't melt steel. That's a very tricky one because it's, it points away from the actual physical forensics as if all, first of all, as, as if all that we're dealing with is quote unquote melted steel. It plays directly into the question, uh, the, the, the uh, structure of understanding that was put forth by the official scientific investigation in terms of a uh, progressive uh, building collapse. The whole idea of the collapse is based on the somewhere between weakening and melting of steel by jet fuel, for example. And so instead of focusing on the actual physical forensics, some of them which I described in our previous show, which has to do with dealing with tons and tons and tons and tons of concrete being turned into uh, some of it into even hot vapor, but lots of it into very, very high, uh, highly micronized uh, dust and plumes with a lot of energy behind it. But then also the question of where did a lot of the human bodies go? How are uh, big portions of the building and, and big pieces of structural steel being seen sort of going up and out in arcs in relationship to a quote unquote melt, melting steel. So that I think is another example of the way you can get caught in some of these memes and these popular phrases uh, that really represent a, a, a cover up, part of the counterintelligence operation uh, behind the cover up of September. 11th. So those three parts, I think, are really important to understand, to understand all of them and to understand them in their own separate spheres. The intelligence, the legend side, i.e. the Al-Qaeda hijacking buildings, the, the Bojinka plot, the, the planes conspiracy, the uh, Al-Qaeda in the hills of Afghanistan, the, uh, the Hamburg cell, uh, the the, the training hijackers being fought, you know, being even those that were being uh, followed by Israeli intelligence, for example. All of that is the intelligence side of the operation. Then the military operation, the uh, Pentagon going boom, the World Trade Center going boom, the uh, all of that, the physical aspect of what actually happened, what blew up. And then finally, counterintelligence. How did it get covered up? How is it still being covered up to some large extent today? And that includes a whole array. And I would say going forward over time, I think it makes a lot of sense for us to understand more and more, not just about, I think, the, the military operation itself, because that's really important to focus on. The, the intelligence part is very pretty well understood. It's not well understood in in context very well about how it was very likely a, uh, a cultivated and then ultimately hijacked operation that was utilized in order to then frame up a, a false flag military a demolition op operation. Uh, 
and then, but then the counterintelligence side of it, I think, is really what we really want to focus on to really unpack and dissect how these, uh, how the complexity and the holistic understanding of 9-11 has been held back. And they just slipped into it. One of the ways that it's held back is by calling it 9-11. And in all of the ways that, that uh, I mentioned before about how it dehistoricizes it, how it immediately links it to a hindbrain trauma in terms of 911, uh, and uh, and all of that. So that's what I wanted to say. And so today, I think these what we're going to be looking at is a lot about the counterintelligence conundrum and pitfalls that some fall into, some perpetrate, uh, and how it's uh, all uh, hanging out together. All right. Thank you for that, Jeremy. I, uh, I concur. I concur with that. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of layers to that perhaps the, um, and one aspect of this is this controversy over this, uh, I believe 30, 30 or so, a half hour or so of, uh, of material that was supposed to air on as part of a Spike Lee's, uh, mini series for HBO about, uh, epicenters, New York city, basically New York city since September 11th, that it was, a uh, a half hour or so devoted to um, questions and uh, about the um, about what happened to the World Trade Center towers. Uh, Richard Gage was fe- was supposed to be featured among other people, I believe. Uh, I believe William Rodriguez is in there, and um, I believe uh, Bob McElvain is featured. But the controversy was around um, Richard Gage of Architects and Engineers for 9/11 Truth and um, Spike Lee using his platform to boost the discredited conspiracy theory that the uh, that the World Trade Center towers were brought down via um, controlled demolition by explosives within the towers. And so um, it's a, it's very, um, this is, I would say it's probably one of the more mainstream controversies in recent years in terms of uh, directly involved in like mainstream media. Would you say that, Jeremy? Yes, def- definitely. I think it's probably... At least in the last few years, it seems like the most prominent 9-11 controversy that we've uh, seen, I think. Yeah, I guess you'd have to go back, maybe maybe even go back to something like Rosie O'Donnell. And I don't I mean, I don't know if there's any real notable cases since then, but uh, that's really going back to like the late 2000s uh, to really see this on a. um in a high profile position via a Spike Lee documentary, somebody who has a ton of exposure has. um, And so it's interesting. We, from the perspective of how we covered this, it's, it's very interesting how the aspects of the way the story is covered combined with the, the manner in which the story itself, the issue of September 11th itself coming from the perspective of architects and engineers and Richard Gage um, is put out there and also how the actors within say media, within certain circles who want to um, discredit and work against um, such efforts to feature such information within any type of like programming with the platform. It's interesting, both the, 
the presentation and the reaction to it and the way it's used. I mean, you know, you've got anti-Semitism thrown in there. You've got um, it, it goes all the way from uh, once again, we're giving the kooks the uh, the platform over the proven people at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology who who have proven this it's safe uh, who have proven this to be all ridiculous and going all the way from there to the standard uh, the accusation of anti-Semitism, bringing in the idea that questioning what happened on September 11th is anti-Semitic. And so I believe we even found um, some links uh, talking about you know, Spike Lee and uh, 9-11 epicenters and, the, and even linking all the way to the, the protocols and post 9-11 uh, ADL documents uh, talking about 9-11 and anti-Semitism. So it's, it, it seems be kind of all over the place yeah the reaction to this but in terms of what you just discussed like i do think that this uh this program and the reactions to it fit into that um fit into the uh to what 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 you just went over with the aspects of what we're focusing on with relation to september 11th broadening our understanding and these uh pitfalls that people get into particularly here with uh just making it i think about about the towers and the the science behind it and even Richard Gage bringing in other things that don't have anything to do with like the facts about who did September 11th and why, or even how. So. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's been one of the seen as a specific strategic approach by architects and engineers for nine 11 truth over the years, basically since their uh, origins in the 2000 and when six or seven right in there that they focused totally on the forensics of the the physical forensics and not the political forensics you might say and that was seen as a way of keeping it totally uh, professional and and credible and away from quote-unquote theorizing or hypothesizing uh, even though uh, in terms of the social or political uh, context so that's always been a, a thing. I mean, there's also been controversy about whether AE 911 Truth is uh, limiting the hangout of the physical forensics, understanding the the advanced uh, aspect of or the levels of explosive weaponry that would likely have been needed in terms of act producing the actual physical effects that we saw so but in the reports are that i've heard that uh, in the right up to the, into the approach of this 20th uh, anniversary of september 11th that uh, gage and architects and engineers for 911 truth uh, split and he was sort of pushed out it sounds like because he was because of some of the things that you mentioned where he was bringing in other his his own political opinions about other things and other issues. And I think this can be seen very uh, clearly, even in terms of the approach of the, the classic 9-11 film festival at the Grand Lake uh, Theater. I believe it's in Oakland in uh, the Bay Area. And the poster for it this year was the twin towers as uh as the jabs basically and so there was the you know the crossover and 
Meanwhile, other people were attempting to reintegrate the question of the anthrax attacks back into the September 11th uh, operation, which I think is uh, totally appropriate. And sure, are there things you can, uh, are there resonances, are there continuities in relationship to the newest 311 to, uh, to September 11th and 9-11? Yes, but it, it shows that there is the, it's a similar kind of problematic landscape in the way that we've been analyzing where the quote unquote truth movement uh, and the patriot movement went under the 11-9 Trump operation is it it uh, got it either devolved and or was exposed to have been a thoroughly dirtied up operation with tons of cover up around uh, Trump networks and criminality, but also a degradation of even the discourse around the uh, original issues such as September uh, 11th, uh, to the point of where it became very, very rare, almost non-existent to have a discourse that would truly integrate the, uh, these, these network analysis to show this continuity between 9-11 and 11-9 uh, in basically any of the quote-unquote alt, uh, alt media. And so it is interesting that that you have Spike Lee. I, I, we haven't seen any of this, so we don't actually know how this was all uh, put forth, whether there was some context, some actual real political context about what that might mean if there is some taking on of the physical forensics and AE-911 truth and that these were demolitions rather than... Uh, progressive collapses from plane impacts. And, but, but uh, what we do know is that there was, there's actually a response from, uh, from architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth by Ted Walter specifically about a week after September 11th wrote an article titled Spike Lee's 9-11 Doc still has the building blocks he was laying for his controlled demolition expose. And maybe should we should we read a little bit of that, Greg? Do you think? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, I think this article gets into some of the reasoning for why um, this person, particularly involved with AE nine eleven truth, feels like this documentary, despite the um, the removing of footage and of portions of the documentary, particularly related to Richard Gage, that there's still information that can be used and that can be built upon to um, further the case and further the planting the seeds of asking serious questions about um, what happened on September 11th. So yeah, let's go through this article. Let's go through some of this article. Okay. And I, I just want to reference the, the Slate article th- that we talked about before. It's t- titled Spike Lee has fallen down the 9-11 truther rabbit hole by Jeremy Stahl. And there's not much, I don't, I don't, there's not much background on Jeremy Stahl as a journalist, but it looks like he's been covering this specific angle from the quote unquote debunkery, debunkerism, the debunkerist side for a long time, actually. And in this article, I'll just read a couple, a few paragraphs here. He actually references earlier uh, articles that he wrote. One of them, which was an architect magazine, uh, which you'll see as it comes up. 
Okay, this was published also on August 24th, 2021. So a couple weeks at least before September 11th, uh, getting ahead of this. And this is involved, it looks like, in terms of the Spike Lee response and give me a chance and all of that. I'm going to, you'll see something different, which I guess we did see, but we didn't see it, but we, we heard about it. All right. Quote, on Monday, the New York Times reported that Spike Lee devotes a significant amount of time in his new four-part HBO series, NYC Epicenters, 9-11 through 2021 and a half. Even the titles doesn't even make sense because it references 9-11. Which 9-11? Chile, as Amy Goodman would harp on every single Every, almost every, I remember like 10 years straight, Amy Goodman would take every 9-11 uh, um, anniversary to f- make sure to focus only on Chile, the Chilean the coup. The other 9-11. Today, we're having on Noam Chomsky once again to not talk about 9-11-2001. No, it'd be interesting. I don't think Amy Goodman's ever covered it from the context of Henry Kissinger as a key player in the events in uh, Chile, and taking that to Henry Kissinger on September 11th, 9-11 Commission, uh, Hank Greenberg, Center for National Interest. You won't go down that route. No, let alone then the 11-9. I mean, that's you see see Kissinger 9-11-73 to 9-11-01 to 11-9-2016. He's in the mix. He's in the mix. That is a key uh, figure, I'd say. So. We're going to make the Academy scream. <laughs> and then Noam Chomsky, what would Noam Chomsky say to Henry Kissinger? <laughs> I'll have to. Okay, we'll work on well, it. Well, you know, anybody could go online for two hours and find Henry Kissinger to be some kind of expert on Russian affairs. <laughs> there you go. All right, so back to this Jeremy Stahl article at the Slate, at Slate. Slatest, a hot Cheeto and spinach dip is the sub. What the heck? That's Slate's subheading? Totally weird, dude. Yeah, that sounds about right, actually, in terms of some of the fakery going on here. Fake ingredients. Uh, All right. Quote, NYC epicenters, 9-11 through 2021 and a half. To the group Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth which promotes the conspiracy theory that the Twin Towers were brought down by a controlled demolition as part of an inside job, unquote. I mean, an aside here, isn't the the planes uh, in uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, that's a conspiracy theory too. It's just a different conspiracy theory. I guess they would say they would insist that that's conspiracy fact and uh, and then... uh, demolitions or conspiracy theory. All right. Quote, about a decade ago, I interviewed architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth founder Richard Gage multiple times and attended one of his events for articles in Slate and Architect Magazine. Unquote. And aside here, the the name of the article uh, that Fred, he wrote for Architect, the Journal of the American Institute of Architects, was July 19, 2012, titled Architects Shy from Trutherism. Architects didn't show up for a 9-11 architecture conspiracy documentary screening, and the AIA doesn't want its name associated with trutherism. 
Okay. So that's what he's referencing these earlier, some of these earlier articles. Okay. Back to Spike Lee has fallen down the 9-11 truth or rabbit hole by Jeremy Stahl. Quote, Gage is responsible for peddling some of the most pernicious and long-running lies about the 9-11 attacks, which is why I was surprised that Lee, HBO, and Warner Media might be lending his group any amount of time. I had to see for myself to what extent Lee's documentary actually promoted Gage's fantasies, so I checked out a screener for episode 4, which is due to be released around the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. What I found was surreal and demoralizing. Lee devotes 30 minutes near the very end of his series to relitigating arguments that have been debunked a thousand times. And there's a link there that I'm not sure where it goes to, but. Oh, screw loose, change the blog. That's not a credible source. <laughs> okay. I mean, you can, that you should, you, that's like when, when I was first investigating September 11th, I read screw loose change because it helped me, uh, knock down the straw men, the red herring, the limited hangout, the false facts. But in terms of a credible approach to the totality of the truth around 9-11, screw loose change is not a definitive, quote unquote, debunking. Back to the article, quote, specifically, he presents about a dozen conspiracy theorists and members of Gage's group, including Gage himself, in a back and forth with three credible scientists who investigated the 9-11 attacks in a teach-the-controversy-style format that presents the truth behind 9-11 as an open debate between two equally valid sides. In terms of conveying the facts, this is a bit like presenting COVID-19 vaccine skeptics in a debate alongside Anthony Fauci or Holocaust deniers alongside the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Interesting reference, by the way or a clique of climate change skeptics alongside the authors of the United Nations IPCC report. And then finishing up here, unfortunately, it's also clear from Lee's presentation in the film, as well as his public statements, where his leanings are on this quote-unquote controversy and where he wants the audience to land. In a New York Times interview published on Monday, for instance, Lee promotes previously debunked quote-unquote evidence of controlled demolition, such as, quote, the amount of heat that it takes to make steel melt, that temperatures not reached, unquote, and, quote, the way Building 7 fell to the ground, unquote, was suspicious. All right, I'll, I'll finish there. But you see exactly as I mentioned in some of, you know, as we were introducing this, that we go directly to the red herring and limited hangout uh, meme. The meme, the meme warfare, the amount of heat it takes to make steel melt. What kind of heat and force does it take to vaporize molybdenum? I mean, that's a specific question that has specific answers that has specific implications for the actual physical forensics of September 11th. And then, of course, they say, and the way Building 7 fell to the ground. All right, and jet fuel, all, all this stuff. This is, this is a perfect example of the way that this is a, I believe, a controlled horseshoe of some sort. And even the way that he was talking about the, uh, uh, that uh, Spike Lee had presented this originally sounds perfectly tuned to, to what I associate with the long-term uh, deep CIA line. 
I guess we'll never know, but it's okay to debate it. It was interesting how the, um, basically a back and forth between Gage and the official scientists. And it's interesting, I think, either in that article or in another article, uh, similar article we had, uh, we had identified about this uh, controversy, um, there was a, there was a portion with, uh, I guess, an exchange on COVID-19, where it's a, uh, a rap artist by the name of Waka Flocka Flame, uh, claiming that uh, COVID-19 doesn't affect Black people or whatever, versus Van Jones being like the authoritative source who says that this is a problem, and obviously it does, and these, consp- and these conspiracy theories are ridiculous. So it seems that also, I mean, without, to be fair, without the context of watching the documentary, it sounds like the same type of uh, conversation comes up in, the, uh, in terms of COVID as it does with September 11th, with a very interesting figure of Van Jones, the playoff of the skeptic within the, uh, uh, the Black community represented in the, um, in the, as the, as the, COVID skeptics slash borderline denialists. So it's interesting too, because then it, the article references, uh, gauge on COVID and, uh, and then definitely down to gauge in the Jews, quote unquote. And, uh, and while also then highlighting once again, that some of the corporate criminals in this case, the, uh, are HBO and Warner media. Which is very interesting that they that that this was that that Spike Lee was allowed to publish this under HBO and Warner Media, and so these kinds of things be, begin to be very suspicious to me uh, in terms of the nature of the quote unquote controversy, especially after the more and more that we learned about how how at the core of any single media entity. It was Warner Media and their and their owned uh, entity HBO that was at the epicenter of the uh, board of the CNI, which which really of any single entity that we can t- point at, I think really holds the character key in many ways to those who are span the gap from credible suspects hovering around 9-11 to credible suspects hovering around 11-9. And so to see HBO and Warner Media again, sort of take the, take the limelight with this controversy where they're now attacked for, uh, by the Jeremy Stahls of the world. And, uh, and then they're said to be, have probably put the pressure on Spike Lee to have, mellowed down his quote-unquote controversy i'm just uh this to me smells of counter long term these kinds of these are counterintelligence grist basically for the long-term mill of uh maintaining the 9-11 cover-up which always takes sprinkling the controversy uh in certain ways it doesn't mean that all controversy necessarily is not organic or is not to potentially beneficial. It can be, but this kind of stuff, I think it totally seems to have defined exactly away from a focus on the, on the what, and then painted the what and the how, and then painted the real serious questions of the who and the why with the terms of like the Jews and uh, 
COVID is a hoax or these kinds of things, I think, is uh, what it really does. It's very interesting that you identify here Warner Media, of course, and uh, Warner, um, HBO, Time Warner, and uh, Richard Plepler and Jeffrey Bukes and even Jeff Zucker of CNN being at the uh, Mayflower Hotel, uh, the luncheon prior to the uh, May Trump's Mayflower Hotel speech with Henry Kissinger and uh, Jared Kushner, and I'm sure Dimitri Simis was present. And, uh, and then the person brought in to be the official source on the COVID is uh, Van Jones, CNN employee. So, so true. Um, and, and so and then one thing I want to bring up here and like, did, you almost get the impression, this is just speculation on my part here, but you almost get the impression that this could even shape up to be like some type of uh, Oliver Stone, uh, JFK moment, potentially. Um, whereas like, this is the, you know, we haven't Spike Lee playing the role, maybe wittingly or unwittingly, knowingly or unknowingly playing a role of like a, Oliver Stone in terms of Oliver Stone being key to the um, the culture of conspiracy around the Kennedy assassination. I don't know. Could it become something like that? I don't know. I mean, uh, comparatively, 20, uh, the movie JFK was 28 years after the um, assassination. This is shaping up on the 20th anniversary. I mean, it may be completely not that, but I just can't help but think that. And Jeremy, going back to what you talked about like with this some type of it seems like controlled horseshoe at some level or another and this is also this might not mean anything but i think it's worth pointing out it was very interesting when you look at um even looking at the personas of spike lee and uh, richard gage it's very interesting that you've got here spike lee who is this um he is the you know it was his film on malcolm x is one of the definitive um accounts of the life of Malcolm X, you know, that has been put out there in the mainstream. And also Spike Lee, uh, getting into some of the horseshoe topics that we've discussed in the past with relation to some of these, um, some of these aspects as it relates to race relations and um, the fringes of society. Spike Lee uh, was the uh, behind, was the person who made this um, movie about uh, David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan, a uh, black Klansman, black KKK Klansman about the, uh, the, um, the infiltration of, uh, I believe it was a uh, Duke's uh, affiliated chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1970s. And then on top of that, interestingly going full horseshoe from Malcolm X all the way to David Duke, all the way back to uh, the Malcolm X adjacent, at least uh, legacy-wise, Nation of Islam and Richard Gage, a number has spoken at numerous uh, Nation of Islam events over the course of the past years, at least a couple of events. And so I thought that was interesting um, in terms of, you know, you have Spike Lee as this legacy um, person who's out there in terms of shaping these narratives in terms of our understandings of some of the key aspects of the um, of the very, uh, in a lot of cases, I believe agents, uh, your David Duke types, who are used as the, um, the almost like boogeymen, so to speak, in terms of like uh, influencing the public into uh, views on, as it relates to race relations, and the further, further division of our society on a racial and societal basis. And then coming full circle with uh, even featuring in his documentary. I don't know what kind of connections there might be between Spike Lee and maybe Farrakhan adjacent uh, individuals, but it's interesting that then you even have this full circle of Gage speaking at the uh, Nation, of Is Nation of Islam conferences. And it may not mean anything, but I think it's still interesting. And Spike Lee is like this legacy um, media uh, narrative shaper is in terms of his documentaries and films, I found to be very interesting. 
Very, very much so. And I think that we, I remember that in the run-up to the 2016 election, that we identified Farrakhan and Alex Jones coming together in the run-up and in a sort of a, an endorsement of Trump, really, at some level. Like, the Farrakhan wasn't as direct about it as Alex Jones was, but the, that was a moment that we we were like, oh, there's a this. We started being like, oh, there's a fix in here in terms of this uh, this quote unquote opposition to the establishment. We noticed that there was that was a very interesting horseshoe, uh, especially since it was during a time where Alex was beginning to have blowback, some blowback about how he was like a, a so actually a crypto David Ike where he was really uh, dog whistling about the quote unquote Jews and was just trying to be politic in relationship to it. And then for him to be so friendly with, uh, with Farrakhan, uh, I think was very, very suspicious in that, in that, uh, in that moment. And so I, I think you might be right that there's something to this that begins to feel like it's sure it's not as supercharged as, as Oliver Stone and the movie JFK uh, in relationship to its uh, impact, the level of the controversy uh, and all of that, it still feels a similar kind of situation in many ways. And such as, you know, in the Oliver Stone's uh, case, we've over and over identified the glaring nature of Israeli military intelligence, Lekem, Lekam, in that case, nuclear intelligence, very likely. Uh, Agent Arnon Milhand being the executive producer and what that meant about what was going on in terms of the who and the why in the, the film JFK and what was not being covered there. And there's something sort of similar going on here, I think, when you look at it as HBO Time Warner. Uh, and and also like that that the fact that that this is Spike Lee does this at a time when it then it's told from a New York perspective I believe and that it's COVID is a crucial thing and COVID conspiracy theories are acknowledged as you know as very very dangerous uh, and so this is uh, I think that it's meant to uh, to uh, put it into a, some kind of similar kind of space that the film JFK seemed to have served to at least some of the potential perpetrators of the Kennedy assassination itself. Uh, and so unless you have any more comments on this story, Greg, uh, let's, let's move on to the media depiction or the new film about the original 9-11, September 11th paymaster, Kenneth Feinberg. Um, no, I really don't have any any final statements on it, except for I think that this uh, controversy is like a microcosm of the uh, of what we um, it it is it is what we discussed. And in terms of the legacy, it's not a perfect analogy between um, Oliver Stone, JFK, and Spike Lee, September 11th. But in terms of like the converging of like the the influence it could have over over time, in terms of uh, the, I don't know if. Uh, 9-11 epicenters is going to be the cultural like phenomenon that uh that th or 30 minutes that was left out of the documentary is going to be the cultural phenomenon that uh jfk was but um it's interesting in terms of the net shift 
shaping of the narrative as time goes on, particularly September 11th being brought in more and more directly with uh, COVID-19 in terms of what you discussed with the, the 9-11 Film Festival or even David Icke on this otherwise, um, it seems, solid information being put out on 9-11 stream, getting into uh, bringing COVID directly into it. So I think this is a, um, a glimpse of what's to come with the future of anything that's related to September 11th uh, being moved more and more directly with this, um, some of the more, I would say, probably misleading or um, toxic weaponized narratives out there about COVID-19 and everything and everything uh, surrounding it. So. And one final point I would make about the, the way that it's linked to COVID-19 is, and I've said this a few times over our analysis of COVID-19 specifically, is that a very similar kind of counterintelligence structure to the cover-up of SARS-CoV-2, the origins of SARS-CoV-2 itself, and then the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, it, it feels very, very similar in, in many ways to what happened with uh, September, September 11th. And even if you think about what Gage was seen as being quoted about the quote-unquote tyrannical response to uh to COVID-19 or the using the word of hoax that is very reminiscent of very similar kinds of counterintelligence strains in relationship to September 11th to this day there are those including the so-called peace movement or the so-called civil libertarian movement who would do everything they can to focus not on the origins of the September 11th attacks themselves, but to focus on the overbearing, overwrought, tyrannical, totalitarian, uh, quote-unquote, response, whether it was the war, ongoing war response or whether in terms of the, quote-unquote, peace movement or whether it was the, the surveillance state or the TSA in terms of the civil libertarians. And that was a very specific move. It relates in my mind to something like we were lied to uh, about 9-11. That's all we need to know about the origins of 9-11. Let's go right to the question on the response, right? And you've already played into the hands of the perpetrators when you're talking about response, <laughs> right? Rather than the next part, the next part of the operation. So there's that. And then there's also the 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 focus on the hoax or the the undermining or the underplaying of the actual death and destruction of the originating operation itself. So with SARS-CoV-2, instead of a uh, a focus on the forensics, now there are those who who have done that, but they're not the quote unquote truth movement. They're not the quote unquote. Uh, peace movement. They're not the civil, they're not the justice movement. They're not the civil libertarians, you know? So this is also being uh, avoided, the actual origins, the, the potential who and the why of COVID-19. And this is even more glaring than September 11th because September 11th was at least recognized in the, it, uh, everybody recognized it was an attack. There, the controversy, if we want to call it that, is about who did it and why and some hows and what's, right? It's not about whether it, w it was an attack. And so now with SARS-CoV-2, that whole line is being covered up now even more and more in terms of the rollout of the lab leak theory, which 
immediately puts it into a hangout of eliminating the question of a deliberate release or a deliberate uh, provocation or spread, you know. And so I just wanted to point out that this combination of focusing on the tyrannical response, whether it's the lockdowns or whether it's the the jabs uh, or if it's the uh, the question of the quote unquote hoax to undermine to undermine the nature of the attack itself is are both avoidance they're both uh, counterintelligence uh, contrivances I believe away from the the who and the why that really should be the focus. So and so it's very interesting that this is where now Gage gets himself in trouble, whether it's in Slate or with architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth itself, uh, that it is in relationship to playing the same silly game at best in relationship to information warfare around the most current 311, let's say, in terms of COVID-19. So I just uh, noticed, noticed that. And so this is why, for those who are of good faith, I think it becomes more and more important for us to get our minds right and to really get uh, serious about how rigorous we are conceptually. And now there's always been those who have been rigorous in terms of investigation and research, but there's, there's a, a, a veritable lack, a, a vacuum almost, of conceptual rigor. rigor in terms of these kinds of independent investigations, uh, we the people investigations of these kinds of crimes against we the people. And so that, that's why I think we need to really parse this out and not sort of see these as sort of good, positive, just controversial scraps of controversy uh, in a way. And it's something that I understood fairly early on in terms of September 11th Truth Act truth and justice activism was that it was not enough to get the quote unquote truth out there. It, it had to be, it had to be done in a core political way and it had to be done in a way that facilitated people's overall understanding of politics uh, and the political power, uh, which would include a focus on the who and the why as the reason for focusing on the, the what and the how. And then the focus on the who and the why is not for its own sense of sort of truth and justice, uh, por- deep state pornography, but was for core political reasons, uh, which for some reason sort of people in the peace movement somehow continue to miss that that was always the point of 9-11 truth, was justice. And in justice, there was then the precursor for peace for actually the ending the 9-11 wars took justice for 9-11. Justice for 9-11 took truth for 9-11, as uh, I pointed out uh, before. So I, I do think these are sort of provocations of some sort in a way. I agree. And even if it's not intentional, I think that you're right about that. Um, it, intentional or not, these are um, provocation is a perfect word for it. So uh, I guess we're ready to um, move ahead to the uh, to the 9-11 paymaster, uh, Kenneth Feinberg. All right. So we saw the story, uh, another Slate story. This Slate is a really, I think it's very, it's the tip of the, uh, 
tip of the spear in terms of uh, uh, sort of sleazy pseudo liberal. Uh, um, one interesting thing about Slate is uh, Slate did actually a multi-part uh, audio series on uh, David Duke um, a couple of years back that I listened to in its entirety, and it was um, very. I found it to be a very interesting listen. There's a lot in there, but of course, completely missing any question of like Duke being perhaps like this uh, long-term agent uh, operative working to um, as a as an agent of um, destabilization to rather than like he's just like sort of some garden variety racist who made it to made it into uh, almost made it into the highest positions of uh, of state and. Uh, federal government so it was you know but it was so that's like that's a classic example of like how a media outlet like a slate will operate in terms of like uh the legacy of like this boogeyman bigot getting into positions in society but not no type of like conversation about you know is this uh is there more to this than meets the eye so definitely and the, the it's interesting some of the more i think touchy episodes that we've done in the past and the kind of episodes that seem to have been focused on by the uh, whatever sort of people or forces at YouTube who ultimately took down our whole channel were these kinds of issues. For example, our, our show about the CNI and CNN and Time Warner about, I believe it's called weaponized politics and what and the weapons of policy or something like that and it, it included a lot of the arc here that one was immediately uh very soon after we published it that one was uh, taken down i think um or maybe it was a little bit later on but it was taken down twice and there was there's nothing in there that could be thought of as targeting or hate speech or any of these kinds of things it's it's core political speech through and through there are documented facts there are uh facts about the who's on the board at the cni there's facts about what steve bannon was saying to nigel farage all of that and sure is there hypotheses and analysis yes so that one is very touchy and then the show that we did about uh about uh lifetime actors and uh lifetime directors or something like that that dealt exactly with what you're talking about about david duke and then Spike Lee as portraying the KKK and the David Duke, Duke episode is totally in the realm of where we get into really touchy subjects for a whole element, it looks like. Uh, and so these kinds of questions about actually analyzing David Duke, not as this sort of uh, a man of sort of the Ku Klux, just this sort of like uh, organic man of hate and the Ku Klux Klan but what is what are the origins of the Ku Klux Klan itself? And then, as we call him, David Duke the Spook. All right, and we think that that is very likely the proper analysis. And then these kinds of depictions of him, whether it's the Slate Limited Hangout or the Spike Lee sort of cinematic, potentially provocation around it, uh, also a limited hangout, very likely. Now I haven't seen it, so and I haven't listened to that to that slate thing, but that's my sense of where these things uh, end up, and so I think that that this is why we continue to attempt to unpack these realms of counterintelligence. They're so crucial, and they're, it's similar in a certain way. The way that you point out, Greg, that 
the and we were discussing this before when we were talking about 9/11 about how the 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 who and the why can then actually go back and inform the what and the how and so it makes a lot of sense to not just do it in a linear way but more in a uh, cyclical and networked analysis kind of way even when you're dealing with the who, what, when, where, why, and how of journalism or the means, motive, and opportunity, you keep on, if you learn something maybe that looks like it's ahead of you in terms of the basic forensics, if you learn something about who might have motive for, for something uh, or how someone might have done something that you can't prove that, that they did or that was done, you can then use that to cast back onto your basic forensics. This is done in in physical scientific hypothesis all the time. And it's, it's you, you use uh, conceptual frameworks to begin to actually notice phenomena that you might've missed before and that your conceptual frameworks actually can then help you recognize facts and parse them out from things that you might've missed before or the, the, the detritus of uh, historical phenomenon that pile up and you begin to miss certain things. And this is why the counterintelligence operations are so powerful because if they get, if they get, get you asking the wrong question, it doesn't matter where the, where the answer comes from, right? Or if they get you making the, the wrong claims or the controlled claims, then it doesn't really matter ultimately how well that's uh, perceived or uh, accepted. And so in a similar uh, kind of way, that understanding the counterintelligence side of the control of the discourse, whether it's this question of who is David Duke actually, what is the nature of this Spike Lee uh, slate New York Times controversy apparently, you know, sponsored and, you know, backed by the commanding heights of Time Warner uh, HBO, uh, that the, the, you can begin to then un use these counterintelligence analyses to then uh, actually begin to retrace your actual history. For example, Ku Klux Klan itself. In a certain way, it was some of our investigation into uh, d d the nature of David Duke, who we suspected to be a spook, that then could let us into beginning to unpack this much deeper history of the Ku Klux Klan, the question of how it emerged, the nature of the origins of the B'nai B'rith, the relationship of all of that to the, the nature of the Civil War, uh, of Confederate intelligence in high places, the nature of the Lincoln assassination, uh, then the birth of then the, the birth child of the B'nai B'rith, the so-called Anti-Defamation League, and then the nature of that as a uh, controlling aspect in relationship to some of these earlier dynamics of of uh, African Americans and the Black Jewish re relationship and all of that. So these kinds of things are examples of the way that you can use your current counterintelligence analysis to then unpack parts of actual history, certain historical forensics that you might have missed before because you didn't even look for them. Yeah, I guess my last thing on this will be, and uh, because I don't want to get off on too much of a talk, discussion about this, but uh, just go back and look at like that time period there in the 1910s, which uh, goes from, of course, the entrance into the First World War, but also you have the establishment of the Anti-Defamation League coinciding within a couple of years of the um, of the re 
of the reformed Ku Klux Klan for the first time since the Reconstruction era and the film Birth of a Nation being mass distributed, which is a celebration of the um, of the the clan of the white man in the South rising up to fight back post-Civil War from all the oppression they were facing. I mean, it's an extremely fascinating historical timeline. And then in there, of course, you throw in all the intrigue with uh, oh, Woodrow Wilson and Louis Brandeis and the, um, and the Balfour Declaration. Very, very fascinating time in history. So much. There was a time on the antidote where everything kept coming back to like the 19, the, the teens in terms of what we were investigating uh, based on that whole, uh, you know, r- array of really concentrated history that you're talking about in terms of that time. Um, so we will uh, we will return to that, I'm sure. And so moving on here now to this uh, slate story. And slate with this the uh, the tagline a hot Cheeto in spinach dip. All right, you know, interesting taste maybe for the moment. Pretty bad nutrition, I would say. All right, the title is uh, uh, called "What's Fact and What's Fiction in Worth," and that's the name of the film. The Netflix movie stars Michael Keaton as the man in charge of the 9/11 Victim Compensation Fund. Is it ac- accurate by Matthew Desim? And this was written. September 3rd, 2021, or published September 3rd, 2021, and then shows the picture of Kenneth Feinberg with his hand on his, his finger on his lips on the left, and then Michael Keaton as Kenneth Feinberg on the right with his finger not quite a similar kind of stance, but his finger not on his lips, actually, but to the side. And so uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of this, and then we'll uh, quickly move into who is Kenneth Feinberg, and then why this is a crucial piece of understanding September 11th, and what I would then say would be part of the counterintelligence part, the cover-up part of September 11th, and maybe the key, the key, maybe the militarized side of the counterintelligence operation, meaning the most threatening part of the aftermath of an event like this would be potentially the legal and thinking back of what was uh, what was uh, portrayed to me told to me by someone who had also put in those uh, 9/11 treason papers uh, like I had and gotten back from contacts that the intelligence community does not fear the politicians but it does fear the justice the judiciary And so similarly around something like September 11th, that would be the key locus to control that would need a military precision of control after the fact in terms of the counterintelligence cover-up part of it would be the legal process. And so in order to do that, there needed to be an elimination of as much as possible of those who had standing, legal standing, meaning the family members of the victims of the originating attack. But also you can think about this as a, almost a core political or even spiritual, who had spiritual standing and the nature of the the family members. And even think back to the controversies over the family members and how that carried weight. And it wasn't just because it was legal, it was because there was an understanding that there was spiritual standing there. Uh, and uh, so there, 
there's something uh, really crucial to understanding the 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 uh, the paying off of the family members of the September 11th victims who would who would have had standing uh, if they had been able to push the legal pathway all the way through. All right, quote. Worth, the, the new movie from the director Sarah Colangelo and screenwriter Max Borenstein, or Stein, I don't know, tells the story of Kenneth Feinberg, the man who was put in charge of the September 11th victim compensation fund. The fund, set up only days after the attacks, was Congress's attempt to simultaneously protect airlines from ruinous lawsuits and compensate the families of the victims for their unfathomable losses. We've consulted Feinberg's, Feinberg's book, profiles of some of its main characters, and other sources to sort out what's true and what's artistic license in the Netflix drama. Kenneth Feinberg. Kenneth Feinberg, the lawyer who is special master of the September 11th victim compensation fund, is played by Michael Keaton in the movie, and his pr- portrait is typical for this kind of movie. There are a lot of correct details, but the overall shape of events has been massaged a little to fit into a film narrative. Feinberg chronicled his experiences overseeing the fund in What Is Life Worth? The unprecedented effort to compensate the victims of 9-11. And it's one of the primary sources for Bornstein's screenplay. As seen in the movie, Feinberg is immediately identifiable as being from Massachusetts, but his accent is a little less strong than Keaton's extremely fun performance. By way of comparison, C-SPAN has video of the December 20th, 2001 press conference at which he explained the Victim Compensation Fund. And then there's a, there is a uh, link to that. Feinberg's love of class. I mean, one, one thing, though, note the timing of this, too, of how quick it was. And yes, are there are there uh, those credible explanations and very likely reasons behind the quick establishment of it in terms of uh, attempting to shield the uh, airlines from uh, potential civil suit collapse? Yeah, definitely. And to uh, to uh, give the family members something? Yes. But even that, mainly so that they wouldn't ask as many questions and then so they wouldn't have standing. That's what I would say in terms of why this was pushed quickly. Think about this versus the 9-11 commission, which was put off for as as long as possible until they then did it and then named Henry Kissinger to be the original uh, head. I wonder what kind of outline, what kind of script he would have written and whether it would have uh, been different from Zelikow if uh, Kissinger had remained the head of the 9-11 commission. I imagine there wouldn't have been too much of a, of a difference. Maybe you got a more strictly, I don't know, more strictly Israeli centric, Zionist centric uh, agenda with uh, Zelikow. But I'm, and you know, Kissinger, we could say overlaps that, but I think it's bigger, broader with Kissinger than just that. But um, no, I don't, I doubt in terms of like the, the strengthening of the official story, I'm sure you know, there wouldn't have been too much overlap, I'm sure. And I imagine you might have still had some of the same players in terms of the uh, 
know, Keen and Hamilton and those types. So, I mean, it's, it'd be, it's an interesting question. I imagine it wouldn't have uh, differed too much. I, I, I think you're probably right. But I do, I, I think you're also definitely right about that the, the Zelikow was like the sort of core Zionist scripting represented uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of that. And Kissinger would have been a much more macro global uh, trans, uh, more multipolar potentially, as you might call it, scripting. Um, all right, I'm going to read a couple more paragraphs from the Slate article, and then we'll d- delve a little bit more into uh, Feinberg, what's like missing on his background, even like in terms of like a Wikipedia uh, sourcing uh, from this article. All right, quote, Feinberg's love of classical music is real, as is the listening room in his house, complete with an extensive and well-cataloged CD collection. The bravura sequence in which Feinberg, ensconced in his headphones, fails to notice his fellow passengers receiving news of the September 11 attacks, however, is an invention of the movie. On the morning of September 11, the real Feinberg learned about the attack in stages. He saw the aftermath of the first plane hitting the World Trade Center on a TV in a common area at the University of Pennsylvania after teaching a class there. And then on a train from Philadelphia to Wilmington, passengers with portable radios spread the news of the second tower and the attack on the Pentagon. He wasn't anywhere near the Pentagon and did not see the aftermath from a train window. The movie also fudges some details about Feinberg's involvement in the September 11 Victims' Compensation Fund, implying that Senator Ted Kennedy asked Feinberg to help out because so few people specialize in victim compensation. Feinberg did have an extensive experience in that sort of case, having worked on the Agent Orange settlements as well as other high-profile mediations, but he lobbied to get the position. The movie shows him in a meeting with Senators Ted Kennedy and Chuck Hagel on September 22, 2001, discussing how the Victims Fund should work. Although it's an effective way to deliver a lot of exposition, that meeting probably didn't happen. September 22nd was the day George W. Bush signed the bill establishing the fund, and by then the details had already been hammered down. That's, what, less than two weeks after the uh, September 11, 2001. Okay, back to the text. Quote, according to Feinberg, he got the job by calling Hegel, who'd been in the United States Department of Veterans Affairs during Feinberg's work on the Agent Orange cases. After reading about the bill in the newspaper, newspaper, Hagel advanced Feinberg's name to Attorney General John Ashcroft, who appointed Feinberg after meeting with him twice. Okay, we'll we'll leave it there in terms of this article. Um, what's fact and what's fiction in Worth by Matthew Decim in Slate, September third, twenty twenty one. And it's interesting what they what they say about his background in mediation and with what they don't say about it. And I and it is very interesting that that uh, that it portrays him as having been you know solicited for this role uh, rather than even the limited hangout aspect of him pursuing it. Have just heard of it, he just heard about it, you know. So I'm suspicious that that either of those are true, but it's definitely, it seems to be more true that this was not, uh, you know, 
let's see, uh, the, this is Ted Kennedy and uh, and uh, Hagel, Chuck Hagel. What? Who could who could do this? We needed to be able to get the best person for the job. Who could do this? Oh, Ken Feinberg, he could do it. Now, what's interesting is that there is this background between uh, Ted Kennedy and Kenneth Feinberg. Now, moving on to the um, Wikipedia page for Kenneth Feinberg. Quote, Kenneth Roy Feinberg, born October 23rd, 1945, is an American attorney specializing in mediation and alternative dispute resolution. Feinberg was appointed special master of the U.S. government's September 11th Victim Compensation Fund and served as the special master for TARP Executive Compensation. Oh, in 2008, he was also involved in that, which I, when I questioned uh, then uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, I asked whether he'd gotten warning of that economic control demolition like his firm, Goldman Sachs, uh, had before September 11th. So interesting, I'd forgotten that Feinberg had also been involved in the TARP bailouts for 2008, which more and more people recognize there was a, a controlled demolition. It was just not, it was not just about uh, greed out of control per se. Now that's a much more complicated uh, thing that we'll put aside for now. Uh, but I just, but just the fact that he was involved in that amount, that controversy, that was one of the most controversial uh, handouts uh, in American history, really, economically. All right, back to this uh, Wikipedia page with Kenneth Feinberg. Quote, additionally, Feinberg served as the government-appointed administrator of the BP Deepwater Horizon Disaster Victim Compensation Fund. Feinberg was appointed by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to administer the One Fund the Victim Assistance Fund established in the wake of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings. Feinberg was also retained by General Motors to assist in their recall response and by Volkswagen to oversee their U.S. compensation of VW diesel owners affected by the Volkswagen emissions scandal. Feinberg was hired by the Boeing Company in July 2019 to oversee distribution of $50 million to support 737 MAX crash victim families. Okay, and aside there, I mean, there's a, that's, I, we, we haven't investigated this much, right? But there is a, there are serious questions about those, what's going on there in terms of cyber uh, and uh, all of that. So that's, I mean, just the list of all this. Quote, Feinberg is also an adjunct professor at the Columbia University School of Law, University of Pennsylvania Law School, Georgetown University Law Center, New York University School of Law, the University of Virginia School of Law, and at the Benjamin N. Cardoso School of Law. Okay, the, the list here, I'm going to just keep going through this. I'll just read. I believe um, Zellicow is also at the University of Virginia. So that means, yes. uh, so there, just throw that in there. Yeah, that's true. All right. He, the, um, oh. Let me just, I'll just go quick. I'll just read the list of all of these ones that he was involved in, and then we'll go a little bit more deeply into the background here. Life and career, the section. Okay, there's uh, 14 points here. 1.1 is the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, which has two parts, the eight-part Feinberg plan and two, the history of participation. Then two, uh, uh, the Hokie Spirit Memorial Fund. Uh, then the special master for executive compensation. That's the TARP one. 
than the BP oil spill fund. The Hokie Spirit Memorial Fund is the uh, 2007 uh, Virginia Tech school campus massacre. Oh, so, oh my gosh, dude. The pet, all right, then next, the Penn State settlement. Is that talking about the, uh, the pedophilia? I imagine, right? That would be Jerry Sandusky, yes, and that whole that whole scandal, which um, I sense, and look, I don't want to speculate, but I sense that uh, I think there's already there's already is evidence out there, and there's a uh, information out there that points it as being much bigger than just simply a perverted uh, defensive uh, coordinator at Penn State University and the coach who let it happen. And so, yeah, I mean, in the course of the involvement, also, I believe uh, Louis Free was involved in that investigation of the FBI and all that. So, I mean, it, it, it's deeper than just that. So, I mean, his name keeps popping up in all these things. Yes. And there, there's now we begin to understand that from Penn State, I think you're right. It's just deeper. It's deeper than just this in, this isolated area. And when you begin to see the the totality of the way that these kinds of, of pedophilia operations are uh, covered up, but also used. For example, Epstein Maxwell, that whole uh, network. Or then going back to something like uh, Boy, Boys Town and the, uh, the Omaha scandal. Uh, or uh, then the, all the questions of call boys surrounding the White House. Um, Jerry Spence, all of, all of that. Gannon. You begin to see that this is a, uh, a network of at least of operations. Uh, and, uh, and so, and then now into what's going on in relationship to the understanding of the FBI cover-up of the Larry Nasser pedophilia scandal. Yeah, there's a lot of names. You can't help but think that there's interconnecting here between, you know, you know, you got Sandusky, you got Larry Nasser, you've got the neighboring state of Ohio and the Ohio State Wrestling and Congressman. I mean, you, Jim Jordan, it's, you'd have to, like, you, you, you'd have to, like, be naive not to at least question if there's, like, some type of uh, conjunction or continuity at some level or another with all these things. Yes. All right, so let's go through this some more, and, uh, and maybe what we'll do, Greg, is just finish up with this, these, these sort of t discussing these two uh, depictions, these two media creations of the Spike Lee, and then this one about Worth uh, and Kenneth Feinberg, uh, and then finish this as a sort of a part two A, and then we'll record again uh, in relationship to two B around some of the the more the discourse aspect of September 11th and the 20th anniversary, and touch on. Uh, things that Caitlin Johnstone uh, said and wrote or what was a uh, media roots podcast, what were they doing or what was the uh, uh, certain aspects of the peace and justice movement doing in terms of this mass peace action code pink zoom that uh, I was on uh, and these kinds of things. So let's, let's, is that cool with you, Greg? We'll just uh, continue on with yeah, a little more Feinberg. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. About 10 more minutes and then we'll finish up. All right. Oh, so we didn't even go finish the whole list here. All right. But it's, I mean, it's the who's who. It's the, you know, it's every, basically most big, deep event 
a sort of a, a networked criminal event that was uh, of of at least what I remember my adulthood is that's yeah that's what I'm seeing here basically and maybe not every single one but most of the serious ones like that Virginia Tech shooting that was a big deal at the time uh, I remember especially it was like in the middle of the Iraq war uh, and things surrounding that. Um, all right. So then after that, all right, we've got the Penn state settlement. Oh, the Aurora victim relief fund. Oh, so that was that. Oh my gosh, dude, the Newtown Sandy hook community foundation. Oh my, wow. General motors car recall. Special master to oversee treasury implementations of multi-employer pension reform act regulations. I'm not uh, familiar with what that's about. But uh, uh, let's keep going through here. Volkswagen emission scandal, the terrorism compensation fund. Is that the, uh, oh, that's, that's a whole nother thing in 2016. Victims of state-sponsored terrorism fund. Did that go along with JASTA? That seems related to JASTA potentially, actually. Um, then the, uh, in regards to foreign exchange and benchmark rates, antitrust litigation. Then the Archdiocese of New York Independent Reconciliation and Compensation Program. And I think that would be, um, I'm not too well-versed on like the Catholic church scandals, but that's another very highly connected institution in terms of a credible and proven, proven and credible, uh, proven, proven uh, documented activity and credible accusations of like just all kinds of uh, activity within the uh, Catholic church. That's another elite institution right there that Feinberg's involved in, uh, in, in this whole process for so. Yes, and this the the foreign exchange and benchmark rates antitrust litigation. I'm not sure what what that relates to, whether that's surrounding the LIBOR scandal, or or what that's related to. But um, it's I mean the 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 the, the concentration of these is just wild, actually. Okay, and then the United Methodist Church. That was the final one. All right, back to the beginning of his life and career. Quote, Feinberg was born in Brockton, Massachusetts. He received a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in 1967 and a JD degree from the New York University School of Law in 1970. He worked for five years as an administrative assistant and chief of staff for U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy. <laughs> Dang and as a prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney General. Before founding his own firm, the Feinberg Group, now the law offices of Kenneth Feinberg, in 1993, he was a founding partner at the Washington office of K. Scholler, LLP. I'm sure we could find a whole interesting thing there if we were to dig into it. Feinberg had served as a court-appointed special settlement master in cases including Agent Orange product liability litigation, asbestos personal injury litigation, and DES cases. Oh, that's a, uh, a non-steroidal estrogen medication which is presented, presently rarely used. 
In the past, it was widely used for a variety of indications, uh, including pregnancy support for women with a history of recurrent miscarriage. DES, diethylstilbestrol. Feinberg was also one of the three arbiters, arbitrators who determined the fair market value of the, the Zapruder film of the Kennedy assassination and was one of two arbitrators who determined the allocation of legal fees in the Holocaust slave labor litigation. He's a former lecturer in law at a number of U.S. law schools. And Feinberg was the chairman of the board of directors for the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation. Wow. I mean, just the combination of that, that uh, he's the chairman of the board of directors for the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation and was also involved in the, uh, the Zapruder uh, film, Fair Market Value, and then worked for Ted Kennedy for five years. It's just... Uh, I don't know exactly what to think of it, but I, I've, it's uh, stunning. If he was old enough, he would have been involved in like mob or payouts to uh, mob victims under Attorney General Robert Kennedy's investigation. <laughs> All right. All right, let's do a, just a little bit more before we wrap this up. All right, it, it goes through the, the uh, appointed by Attorney General John Ashcroft, John Ashcroft to be special master of the fund. This is the September 11th victim compensation fund. Feinberg worked for 33 months entirely pro bono. Gee. He developed the regulations governing the administration of the fund and administered all aspects of the program, including evaluating applications, determining appropriate compensation, and disseminating awards. Now, by the way, remember that he there was, he was then subsequently member after he worked for quote unquote 33 months entirely pro bono. He then passed it off, I believe, at that point to uh, Sheila Birnbaum, from, who came from Skadden Arps, which is a crucial firm for, for all around. Uh, and definitely, and even was, they had a little piece in the 11 9 uh, prosecutions. But also go go look at uh, Kenneth Bialkin, I believe, the, at Scadden Arps, and the key role of Scadden Arps as a high technology um, corporate legal firm, especially in relationship to Israeli cyber, and then to have then the second nine eleven paymaster Sheila Birnbaum bomb come out of there, uh, I think is sort of telling too. All right. It goes through. Oh, look, let's the eight part Feinberg plan in his book titled, what is life worth? Feinberg described the eight part plan, which is applied to approaching the September 11th victim compensation fund. One identifying someone with sufficient and exceptionally broad experience in mass tort action, mediation, litigation, and settlement, which Feinberg possessed through his previous personal experience as a political activist and his work in the Agent Orange compensation settlement. There's a whole thing, too, there that needed to be uh, dealt with and covered up. Two, to support and follow the law regarding the proportional compensation of victims based on estimated losses from future earnings by hiring a full staff of accountants and attorneys to track and service each claim individually. Three, accumulate... Oh, go for it, Greg. Oh, I was just saying, even without, like... um 
not understanding like the depths of all of this. There's just something inherently cold and almost cruel about determining the value of like how much people are worth to be given monetarily for their dead uh, relatives. I mean, it's just there's something to me that seems inherently very cold about that and off about that. Well, it's definitely the case that that's the the focus, the public focus in wrestling with this the controversy over this story. And it's definitely something very cold about it. There's something even colder about using money to make sure that they can't get the actual justice part of the legal system, which has to do with first and foremost truth of solving the crime about who actually killed their family members, let alone what their family members' life and death was worth, that it was being, it was ultimately, we can see, and now I'm not directly accusing any single individual here, but it was used to make sure that the people who had standing would not have standing anymore. And this was all operated out of uh, Judge Hellerstein's courtroom. Judge Hellerstein, Alvin Hellerstein had a son who was apparently legally involved with a 9-11 suspect security failure company, uh, an Israeli company called ICTS, which was on the, quote-unquote, the, the plain side of the operation. So, yeah, this is uh, dirty politics here, at the, at the very least. Yeah, it goes from ethical, moral questions of, like, the coldness and the, what's, the of valuing like the financial compensation of like lives of victims of uh of family members of victims to all out and out just uh even worse in the aspects of like serving as an aspect of the ongoing cover-up to basically silence people with money or legally keep people from talking due to money so i mean yeah there's a lot of consequence there it goes all the way from the moral and ethical to just outright just um deception and uh actively taking part in a cover-up so and before we, in these last minutes here of our recording today, uh, before finishing up the remaining parts of the eight-part Feinberg plan, and especially as it, the key delivery is the eighth plank of it, I would say, uh, let me just read from the history of participation section here in relationship to what you are noticing about this, uh, is that, um, quote, early in the process, he was described as aloof and arrogant, Feinberg was subjected to some very public criticism at meetings in the media and on websites. Quote, I underestimated the emotion of this at the beginning, unquote, Feinberg has said. Quote, I didn't fully appreciate how soon this program had been established after 9-11. So there was a certain degree of unanticipated anger directed at me that I should have been more attuned to, unquote. It was up to Feinberg to make the decisions on how much each family of a 9-11 victim would receive. Quote, it's a brutal sort of cold thing to do. Anybody who looks at this program and expects that by cutting a U.S. Treasury check, you're going to make 9-11 families happy is vastly misunderstanding what's going on with this program, unquote, said Feinberg. Quote, there's not one family member I've met who wouldn't gladly give back the check or in many cases their own lives to have that loved one back. Happy never enters into this equation, unquote. Feinberg was unable was was able to change the mind of some of his harshest critics. Charles Wolfe, whose wife died in the North Tower, renamed his highly critical website called quote, "Fix the Fund" to quote, "The Fund is Fixed." Unquote. At first, he called Feinberg quote, "patronizing," 
manipulative, and at times even cruel, unquote. He later remarked, quote, to have one of your sharpest critics follow through on a promise and not only join the program he was criticizing, but promote it to his peers says a lot about you and the way you have adjusted both the program and your attitude. Today, I have complete faith in you, unquote. And finishing up here, in 2005, his book titled, What is Life Worth? The Unprecedented Effort to Compensate the Victims of 9-11 was published. Feinberg wrote that a widow of one firefighter cursed him, saying, quote, I spit on you and your children, unquote, for being unfair in his compensation awards. And then back to, in finishing up here to the eight-part Feinberg plan. Number two, quote, to support and follow the law regarding the proportional compensation of victims based on estimated losses from future earnings by hiring a full staff of accountants and attorneys to track and service each claim individually. Three, accumulate all the reports and applications along with counterclaims to gauge and initiate the direct compensation process. Four, the value of informed discretion in compensating claimants under the formula of keeping compensation under the rule of thumb that 85% of the money should not go to 15% of the richest claimant families by narrowing the gap between the largest and the smallest compensations paid to claimants. Five, with a mind to the future, the process of the program should be maintained and serviced as a precedent for future courts to use in future compensation cases as needed. The actions taken should be uniform in their approach. Six, there would be, quote, no substitute for hard work and legal craftsmanship, unquote, of rigorous intellectual honesty. Seven, the support of Senator Edward Kennedy would be recognized throughout the process. And then finally, eight, lawsuits were to be discouraged as contrary to the spirit of the law establishing the compensation fund, unquote. And that is really the payoff, the payoff. They, the, 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 of course, Feinberg is not quoted as saying, I, I don't think any of the, of the family members would trade the money for their loved one's lives. The question is whether they would have traded the money for the truth and justice in relationship to the murderers. The still, I would say, outstanding many of them. Uh, you know, free still uh, murders of their family members. That was the real serious question was whether they would trade the truth and justice for the payoff money. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's um, that right there shows you and like it's and you can see the pattern with like um, it seems in all of these cases, I wonder like it's the same type of a uh, legal legality framework in all of these cases basically is that Feinberg acting to um, basically legally and financially tie people's hands in terms of uh, in terms of taking legal and otherwise action to ensure maybe justice in some of the questionable entities that uh, he's represented over the years in terms of these uh, lawsuits in addition to being um, to help helping I think to establish um, official narratives from things like September 11th to school shootings and on and on like that. I just see the pattern there. And I think that that is um, a good question to be asking. Like, is he acting in this capacity in all of these cases, whether it's September 11th or whether it's Aurora or whether it's Volkswagen emission scandals or 
or a Catholic church, uh, archdiocese. It seems that there's a pattern developing here and it seems to be to prove protecting um, big time companies and players in terms of uh, actual and just buying out people's almost uh, legal and uh, ethical moral silence, it seems like. And every, it seems like that and it, these are really crucial cases, all, a lot of them, or if not all of them, the ones that he's been involved in. Uh, and, and including in terms of the, this, and this is a very sensitive area where the victims in many cases of these is, are being compensated and the door is being closed at the same time uh, as a structure is created uh, under which to allege in our allegedly self-governing democratic society that we are uh, holding. We are holding ourselves responsible. Holding the guilty responsible. Have gotten to the bottom of the truth. Are airing out our dirty laundry. And it to me, it looks like in every one of these, especially these deeper cases, it's obvious the case that this was effectively done to shut the book on the case in terms of potential legal. Uh, and political standings uh, in many ways. And uh, so the proper response to all of this is for those of us who still see that the truth has not been claimed because obviously justice has not been actually done, that we have to re-engage with especially something like September 11th. And this is why this is seen as the sort of the capstone of his career in many ways. even after all these other big things. And then this strain of the Kennedy and all of this is uh, unsettling to me too. Uh, and th- that, that, that was the seventh step of it is to recognize that Edward Kennedy was, uh, was crucial to this process. And then his d- involvement at the John F. Kennedy uh, library, I think center, the, the head of the board or whatever it was that he was. And, um, Involvement with the uh, distribution of and the value of the Sapruder film and that, of course, being the key uh, from the key shaper and purveyor of the narrative and the theories surrounding Kennedy. So. And remember, just the, the on the surface question of the Sapruder film, quote unquote, is uh, Abraham Sapruder. What uh, was was he was he not a. uh high-level Scottish Rite Jewish Freemason? I know that's a touchy question to ask, but uh, I believe it's true. I believe it's the answer is yes. And, and, uh, and so this whole array here of, uh, of Feinberg's involvement throughout the decades uh, is stunning. And, uh, Neither, I believe, this film made, nor this Slate article is going to get to the root of it. So, but we're going to work to continue to to uh, assess some of the roots of all this ongoing cover-up of criminality. So, all right, until next time, Greg, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Antidote, we are out. Bye, y'all. <laughs>